it is a pleasure uh, to have Jason Wild here with us from TerraSend, uh, James Lanthier here, here with us from Mindset, and we are also joined uh, by my colleague, obviously, Scott Willis from Grizzle, and Jesse Redmond uh, as well. So uh, happy to have everyone here. Thank you guys for joining. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Scott, you want to kick it off? Yeah, maybe I want to pick Jason's brain a little bit because we haven't uh, touched base in a bit. There's been a lot of uh, news and, and movement in the yeah. cannabis space. So first of all, I just wanted you to tell everyone listening why every cannabis company isn't listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Why is it not as easy as it looks? Um, I think the re- – well, some of them just uh, – it sounds like uh, from, from what I've uh, – Red others are saying some of them just don't necessarily believe that it's a, uh, a viable option. Uh, and then there are uh, sort of it was easier for us because we were uh, Canadian, originally a Canadian uh, domiciled uh, a company or, or, or we still are. Uh, we are pretty much, I believe, the only Canadian LP that com- completely uh, pivoted into the U.S. Uh, so we already had sort of the structures and when we did the canopy loans over the years we already had the structures to ensure that money was segregated in the right ways uh and in addition to that we had a you know somewhat of a relationship with the with the toronto stock exchange because of the deals that we did with canopy which uh which required a permission from the tsx as well you know some of those things where they where we did the the synthetic convert and things like that a, a few years ago so i don't think it would it's that hard for others to, to you know, do what we did and list on the TSX, uh, I just think it'll uh, it'll take a little bit more work. Uh, and the other thing, which I left out, is you have to have a business that's not plant, you know, uh, not illegally plant touching. Uh, you know, say like the U.S., you have to have a, a business that in their eyes is completely clean. Uh, say like a Canadian business, uh, and that is essentially what they evaluate your listing based on they're evaluating it based upon your clean business uh and then you are essentially you know dropping your plant touching business into a ring fenced uh, subsidiary but it's not being used to qualify and others don't have that or most others don't have that interesting okay so can i just ask you uh, you you thought it was worthwhile to go through that process you already had some benefits so it sounds like it was easier for you than others what are you hoping uh, to kind of gain from the listing or what have you already gained? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, what, what we've consistently said is that uh, we think it just opens up a larger audience of investors and capital that can, uh, that can invest into our company. Uh, we don't think that it, uh, we, we never thought that it was just going to uh, uh, help though, like irrespective of the fundamentals of the business. Uh, but we feel uh, we feel that if we continue to, uh, to execute that, uh, we won't be, you know, the analogy I've used is it, it won't be like a tree that fell in the woods and nobody heard it. Uh, more people can, more people will be able to, uh, or, or now can buy our stock. Uh, additionally, it looks like, uh, the, uh, ETFs that invest in the space, uh, it looks like they can now buy our stock direct as opposed to doing swaps like they have to do on all the, you know, the other, uh, us plant touching. Uh, names that, that they own, and as as uh, I'm sure you guys know, uh, that there's a lot of uh, sort of financing cost around around doing swaps, and a lot of you know a lot of things that make it a, a not the same as being able to buy stock directly. 
and what else in terms of the other things that we've uh, already found uh, is that uh, uh, targets, acquisition targets are much more attractive to our equity uh, being listed on the TSX versus, you know, uh, being on the uh, CSE. Even even the deal that we did in Maryland or one of the deals that we did in Maryland a, f- a few weeks ago, you know, I think it's like a, it was the top three store in the state doing, you know, 14 million in medical in Maryland. Uh, we paid uh, for that asset. We paid $22 million. It was like a million and change in cash. And the rest was half stock and half seller note at like, you know, seven and a half percent. So if we didn't have this listing, they would not have been interested in, in taking that much stock from us. So, I mean, those, those are the, some of the, you know, some of the things that we've seen uh, uh, in the, uh, in the near term, or just, you know, like I said, just knowing that, uh, that we're going to get a bigger audience. And we've also gotten, uh, we've been getting a lot more inbound calls from uh, institutional investors and in- international institutional investors. And we're actually planning uh, to do a roadshow uh, in the beginning of uh, September because the only issue is we listed in the summer. You know, there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of big funds uh, uh, around in most of these cities. If you want to go, uh, if you want to go visit with them and tell tell the story, um, and also we had to get our earnings out of the way. Uh, but we're excited to go out in September. We feel like we've got a great story to tell from a fundamental perspective. And now, also because uh, custody. Looks like it. Uh, it may be uh, fixed uh, now. At least you know we still have the the funds. Still might decide internally, you know, from a compliance perspective that they don't want to invest, uh, you know, in our stock. Uh, but they're not going to get blocked because their prime. It doesn't look like they're going to get blocked because their prime broker won't allow them to buy it if they do decide to buy it. So, so we think that that w- that's actually been. Uh, the removal of uh, us from the blocked list at, at many at many of these institutions, that's actually uh, come out a little bit better than we expected because we didn't know if that was going to be solved. Jason, can I ask a question? Uh, very yeah. helpful. And a question on on just who can own it now, but, you know, and yeah. we, we've kind of gone through this hurdle as well, the the challenge of swaps, et cetera. Um, right. So now would a U.S. fund, because it's TSX listed, like oh, we, maybe you can give me a bit of the landscape of, of like, who before was challenged? Right. Was it Canadian domiciled funds, U.S. domiciled ETFs funds? Like, how, right. how, where, where have like the uh, the blockages been unlocked? Yes. Yeah, it's been um, it's been mostly, and the thing that a lot of people were focused on, you know, prior to us doing this, was the U.S. funds, where many uh, prime brokers, uh, you know, which is uh, for anybody that doesn't know, that's where large larger funds uh, you know has they custody everything what back at one central uh, account uh, many of those prime brokers uh, you know started blocking uh, uh, custody also Pershing who is one of the you know uh, biggest uh, clearers of, of stocks and trades they uh, it must have been about two years ago or so they stopped allowing uh, uh, you know uh, US cannabis companies uh, to uh, to be transacted uh, through them. Uh, and we are told that uh, Bank of America, who owns Pershing, uh, took it off the block list, uh, you know, at some point after we listed in, in July. Uh, same thing with Morgan Stanley. Uh, and I saw the Morgan Stanley note. It said, pursuant to the firm's uh, MRB or marijuana related business policy, uh, Terrasend is now, uh, you know, removed from uh, from the firm's uh, blocked security list. So so that's why. You know, if you were, say, a, uh, a fund that uh, clears through Morgan Stanley 
they would not let you, uh, you know, either transact in those trade in, in those stocks or even if you traded them, you know, did the trade away and brought it back into your prime brokerage account, they would not uh, uh, custody it. And that's a problem that still goes on to this day. Like my fund, uh, we, uh, you know, we clear through uh, uh, Cowan and uh, we cannot they changed their policy when they got bought by uh, uh, TD a, f- a few months ago. And there was a there was a U.S., uh, you know, uh, not Terrasand, a U.S. a U.S. Uh, company uh, that trades on the CSC. And I wanted to buy some yesterday. And, uh, you know, my trader said we, we can't because because Cowan won't custody it. Which has been, you know, that's not something totally new. Uh, and if we really wanted to buy it, we would have figured it out by, you know, trading it somewhere else and, and we could have kept it uh, uh, elsewhere. But it's like there's all these uh, uh, extra hoops that every that U.S. institutional institutional investors have had to jump through over the last uh, three or four years. And at times it's gotten worse. You know, it, it hasn't gotten better. Uh, and this is the first time that we think that there's been a major uh of movement towards things getting better in terms of uh, that it looks like these firms consider uh, the TSX to, you know, like a TSX listing to uh, to be satisfactory in terms of, uh, you know, fitting into their MRB. I think most of these uh, firms, it says something to the effect of it, if it's listed on a on a major exchange like the, you know, the, the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ or the TSX. So it sort of just, uh, it checked the box. And, and really, like, if the TSX has decided that, uh, you know, that terrorists and that, that we fulfilled, uh, uh, you know, any of their concern about um, whether we are uh, uh, offsides with uh, the Controlled Substances Act. Like if they've if the TSX has decided that they're OK, is it really the job of, you know, uh, all of these firms, uh, these, you know, these are clearing agents and prime brokers? Is it their job now to decide Okay, this is the one TSX listed company that we're not going to allow anybody to transact in. You know, it's sort of, uh, it seems like they're just following the policy of if it's on the TSX, it's okay. Jason, very helpful. Thank you for that. And, and I'm just going to get uh, uh, James uh, Lanthier from Mindset, uh, just a, c- a couple questions. Uh, James, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, James. Uh, you know, for and then uh, there, there may be a lot of uh, a lot of people in the audience more familiar on the cannabis file. Um, I posted something in the nest. I, you know, I think performance is always a good place to start with respect to understanding, you know, what's driving the sector. Now, this is one year psychedelic returns um, in the psychedelic sector. Uh, you, returns for mindset. You guys are, are uh, top of the pack here, up thirty five point six percent. Um, the Horizons uh, psychedelic ETF is uh, da- was down 44, 45% the last year. Uh, CMPS, which is Bellwether, down 50, and it's high down 64. Um, that's all over the one-year period. M- maybe I can just ask a first question and then, then a follow-on. The first question is, um, year-to-date, and I, I, don't have, I haven't posted that graph, but I, I'll give you the numbers, right? So we're looking at the psychedelic ETF, which is a pretty broad – um, you know, th- th- there's a lot of different companies in that, and uh, it's a good cross section of the psychedelics universe. It's flat year to date, which kind of all things equal on the cannabis side, it- it's been it- it's been you know much tougher, right? Uh, MSOS is, is down, um, it's down thirty percent uh, year to date, and in you know psychedelics has been flat. And a uh, so uh, what what is um you know 
what's happening in the industry right now that, you know, that's just, you know, that's kept, let's call it exuberance or, or just, you know, kept the interest uh, of investors. Like, you know, why hasn't, you know, why hasn't really, uh, you know, what's kept people in the, in the, in the sector, if you will, and, uh, you know, not selling off anymore. And then, and then second is a question on um, just, you know, what, what's, what's happened with the tie compass and yourselves like differentiators within the sector, winners, losers uh, would, would love to kind of break that down. You know, maybe in just these are just high level questions, but maybe you can dig deeper. But uh, and we can talk more about, about mindset, particularly. But maybe you can give us broad, broad macro strokes here. That'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think, look, you know, our, our point of view uh, is that, you know, relative to the size of the market that these drugs can potentially address relative to their, you know, their breakthrough potential. Um, you know, the, the medical psychedelic space as a whole is, you know, comically undervalued, full stop. Uh, you know, this is a, this is a sector that had just gotten going from a capital market standpoint, and then got, you know, thrown out with, uh, with everything else in sort of the, the biotech, you know, meltdown of the last few years with, with kind of, you know, no, uh, you know, reflection or, 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 you know, distinction between, uh, you know, the different companies in the space. I've never seen an industry before, you know, ever where, you know, the actual scientific validation on, you know, almost a daily basis is as, as strong as this one, um, but where there's a, there's a complete mismatch, um, you know, between the, the, the overall, you know, forget about any one company individually, the entire space is just, you know, totally, totally undervalued, I think. So, Again, uh, in terms of that sort of like daily news and, and validation, there have been, you know, quite a few, um, you know, developments in the last, you know, 12 months that are, you know, really significant. So the American Medical Association, um, you know, released some insurance codes for, for reimbursement. And so, you know, that, that is, you know, uh, a significant, you know, portion of, of the medical establishment and, and you know, financial ecosystem, especially in the USA, taking, you know, a major leap forward. The FDA released, uh, you know, guidelines around, uh, around running, you know, clinical trials for psychedelic drugs that I think is, is a kind of another really strong endorsement and reflection of, uh, you know, how positively the, the FDA views this category of drugs. The one psychedelic, it's not really a psychedelic drug, kind of a psychedelic drug, it's technically dissociative, but there's a there's a drug in the market that Johnson and Johnson um, has developed, which is a, a, essentially a formulation of ketamine called Spravato. And Spravato is like quarter after quarter, just like you know, knocking the cover off the ball. So you're talking about like you know, close to 100% year year over year revenue growth. It's on its way to being a blockbuster drug. And this is not an easy drug to get access to. It's expensive. It's like a third line treatment for depression. You can see that there's, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of uh, demand from, uh, you know, from patients for, for this drug. And then just recently, you know, Compass, just yesterday, Compass announced, uh, you know, a, a major, you know, financing uh, with, you know, kind of a, a whole list of, of, you know, top tier biotech institutional investors. And this, you know, on a, uh, this mirrors what, what we're seeing on a, on a regular basis at Mindset, which is just in the last few months, we've had, I'd say, you know, a lot more interest, a lot more inbounds from, uh, you know, from institutions, because I think that 
really that reflects the fact that like the the institutional investor community is is uh you know knows there's a big opportunity here and a big you know valuation mismatch thank you yeah i appreciate that so 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 you have from your perspective you just you're just seeing this this valuation mismatch and you and you're getting more institutions through now with respect to the performance differential and maybe this gets more into you know mindsets uh, differentiators in the industry. What are you seeing that that is working in the market right now? Uh, obviously, as it relates to your stock, uh, but but you know more broad stroke. You know maybe maybe you could talk about just you know performance drivers that you know a tie year to date ha- you know has not done so well. Maybe just talk about some of the differences in the landscape. Well, well, I, you know, I think when the space got going from a capital market standpoint, right, you, you, you had, uh, there was, there was a lot of, you know, interest in it and, but uh, also not, uh, not really a, a great kind of understanding of, of the direction that the space would, would go in. And, you know, mindset had a really particular point of view or point of view um, you know, was that, you know, there was now enough data that big pharma would be, you know, would, would want to, uh, you know, take psychedelic therapeutics to market. Um, but that they would look at first generation drugs, the drugs that have been around that we've known about for decades, like psilocybin and so on as, as really a good proof of concept for what psychedelic medicine was capable of, but that they would naturally gravitate towards optimized newer versions of the drugs that could use uh, that would have much stronger, you know, intellectual property rights. Um, And that's been our focus from, you know, from day one, I think what we're now seeing chatting with investors is investors coming around to understanding that, you know, this is going to be a sector of the larger, you know, biotech CNS universe. And what's important in, uh, in, in, you know, in any drug space is, you know, our really strong intellectual property rights. Uh, it starts with it really strong intellectual property rights. And that is really where I'd say, you know, mindsets timing was, was really, really good. And the fact that that was our, you know, focus initially, we managed to cover a huge amount of ground from an intellectual property standpoint. And so I think, you know, your 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 the investors that we're talking to at least uh, seem to share the same the same sentiment that you know there's a huge amount of growth potential in this space, and what's going to be really important is uh, you know among the things that'll be really important are are you know really strong intellectual property rights. Thank you, James. Very helpful. And, and Jesse Scott, feel free to uh, you know uh, c- come through with a question either for Jason or James. Uh, I've got another graph here: uh, Terrasin versus MSOS. Jason, maybe you, you probably know that graph, and uh, it's uh, it's it, the performance has been quite good. Uh, maybe Jason, you can talk about in the cannabis sector similar sorts of questions for James. Just you know, what's been the differentiator here for you guys, uh, or just broad strokes? Maybe you know what what's what how have you categorized the sector now i know um sentiment's been terrible to poor um and you know what what, what are the big differentiators you see in, in the sector uh what are the differentiators i think i think it's just been uh our, our the balance sheet uh progress that we've made over the last uh, year or so you know we uh we uh, canopy agreed to equitize 90 million uh in debt uh that we uh that we owed them uh last december we also have paid down. Uh, we paid down about thirty million dollars uh, last year in some separate debt. We paid down uh, a bunch of debt this year. So I think that that's been one of the things because, like, 
right now it seems, and if you see the earnings reports, there's, there's, you know, it's not like everybody's businesses are, are performing poorly. Uh, the bigger issue in my view, and the thing I was worried about a year ago is just that the balance sheets were not strong enough and it wouldn't be just, it's not just good enough to get to be profitable. You have to get to be profitable enough so that you could, uh, you know, service your, uh, your interest. And at some point, you know, believe that you're going to be able to, uh, you know, uh, refinance it or pay it down. So, so I think that's one of the reasons the stock is acted well. We also, uh, I think, uh, had, uh, the Maryland situation where, where the state, uh, uh, you know, uh, went to wreck and we were able to get in there and buy some really, really attractive, uh, dispensaries to get to that four cap. We essentially had zero retail in Maryland on January 1st and, and, uh, for July 1st with the start of wreck, you know, uh, or, or, uh, I guess at this point, we think that we're one of the top market share operators with, uh, with our four stores uh, uh, com- compared to, uh, to the others that are out there. So it's been that, and it's been turning, you know, uh, operationally cash flow positive in Q3 last year. We took down, we took out like $12 million in operating expenses. We've gotten uh, Michigan, uh, our acquisition of Gage in Michigan. Uh, as everybody knows, uh, Michigan was sort of uh, the epicenter of, uh, you, you know, uh, sort of, or, or the poster child for a tough, very competitive market. Uh, and we've gotten that business uh, to be in, in, in good shape and, and, and in, a, in a sustainable position. And now everybody else in Michigan, it seems like, is on, you know, is, uh, in, is mortally wounded. Uh, so, so I think that uh, the stock, at least relative to a year ago, uh, is reacting well to seeing that we can, uh, uh, that we can do well. In, you know, our view was always like nobody's going to give you a multiple for New Jersey or Maryland, where you know things are amazing right now, if you can't show them that place that you can get uh, more mature markets like Michigan uh, to be sustainably profitable, uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully the street is uh, seeing that as well. Uh, and then you know, and you know, the TSX listing, I'm sure that hasn't hurt uh, uh, as well from a from a stock performance uh, perspective. We sort of uh, we sometimes uh, we talk about it internally though that we. We feel like a, a lot of people only apply the sort of the TSX listing as the reason for the uh, for the performance this year, uh, and we sort of feel like it. Uh, it it's almost like it, it's distracting people from all of the other uh, uh, major progress that, that that we've made. We did say on our last uh, call last week or so uh, that uh, for the second half of the year we uh, should be uh, completely cash flow positive. That means. Uh, after taxes and, uh, you know, taxes and interest. Uh, and I think that's the new bogey. That's where companies have to be. They have to show that they're not putting themselves further in the hole every quarter because maybe they made some uh, uh, EBITDA, but after taxes, they, you know, essentially were in the red. Uh, that's uh, fair or unfair for a growth industry. Uh, I think that's the new bogey and, uh, and you know, and, and we're there and, uh, you know, maybe people are starting to realize that from a stock price perspective as well. And, and uh, thank you, Jason. And ju- just for everyone in the audience, and I, I've posted this in the NAS, uh, Terrison's up 42% year to date and MS- MSOS as a broad benchmark for, uh, for, for broad U.S. Uh, MSOs is down 29%. So um, kudos there. Jason. Yeah. Yeah, the one thing I would say, uh, the MSOS folks, uh, we think that they are real advocates for this industry as well. For sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were they were, uh, I believe, the first uh, 
ETF uh, to uh, be able to buy our stock uh, directly, like I mentioned, uh, you know, back in back in July. Uh, and uh, we think they have definitely been advocates for us with the, with the clearing agents and things like that. So, so um, yeah, we uh, we appreciate them. No, for sure. Uh, yeah, you know, just uh, and, and as it is, right? Like it's 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 a barometer, right, for for the broad industry too. So you kind of you, as as yeah. a stand as a standalone company, you you it's always nice to see yourself, uh, you know, beating peers. Uh, and obviously, but the but the but the but the ETF itself is obviously the big boat here, the arc for for all of uh, MSOS. Scott, I'll, I'll pass it to you. Yeah, Jason, you you hit on some of this question, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on kind of what you think the model for success is as a public cannabis company if we don't get the help of legalization. Because I think part of why investors are a little put off is because we've been rug pulled by politicians so much. Mm -hmm. So if you just ignore all that nonsense, what do you think is is the model for success going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like I mentioned, you got to be sustainable uh, if nothing happens uh legislatively and that means uh like you can't be putting yourself in the hole you know even if you didn't pay your taxes or you're deferring your taxes yeah ha- in, in our view or at least the the sort of main goal we had was to be uh cash flow uh cash flow positive even even after uh even if we just assume uh, whatever taxes we accrued if we didn't pay them that quarter i think that that is i think that's that's sort of the the new bogey for sustainability because if you've got a big, you know, a huge amount of debt and you're furthering, uh, you're f- essentially further adding to it uh, every year uh, through uh, through your taxes, uh, whether it, whether you owe it to the government or you borrow the money from a, from a lender to pay it, uh, there's like there's a, a fuse that's going to that's going to you know run out of time if, it, if, it, if things don't happen quick enough. Uh, but if you're sustainable and creating cash uh, after all of that. Then, uh, to me, that's the uh, that's that's the number one bogey and the and the number one key to success. I think uh, you know there's a bunch of other companies. It's not just TerraSend. I mean, there's a bunch of other companies that are that are there or uh, will be there uh, very soon. But then I think the other thing is, it's like you know, uh, growth businesses can always cut their way to or can often cut their way to uh, some level of profitability. But it's all. Uh, a balance of, you know, you don't want to give, you don't want to give up all your growth. Right. Um, so I think that that is also important, uh, to continue to have a, uh, a, a growth, uh, a growth business while, uh, also, you know, sort of, uh, eating while eating while you while you dream. Uh, and you know, that's why we're psyched just because, uh, the assets we have and the way that they're, uh, coming on from a rec perspective, you know, we had New Jersey, uh, and then Maryland came on in, in July, and we obviously uh, uh, turned that into a bigger opportunity uh, than uh, than you know we had originally thought in terms of getting to that to the to the four cap and with our new uh, with our new uh, cultivation facility there. But then, uh, if and when Pennsylvania layers on, uh, you know you know uh, I don't know mid to late next year or the following year, that should uh, layer on another sort of a nice. Uh, a uh, good amount of growth uh, in revenue and profitability for us, especially because our PA facility is our largest scale facility. And uh, if it if it goes the way uh, a lot of these other states have gone, where they flip to rec, uh, and there's a you know a, a major increase in demand, I mean that facility has the ability to to pump out I don't know 250 
or so uh, plus a million in just wholesale revenue. And that doesn't count our six stores that would probably go from, you know, 50 million run right now to something, uh, to something much higher. So I, I guess that's the thing. You got to have that. Uh, you got to have the sustainability by being able to build cash on a quarterly basis. But I think you also have to, uh, you know, be able to grow. Jason, yeah, is just the most probable model... Oh, sorry. Sorry, Scott. Sorry, Jesse. Just one quick one yeah. related to what Jason was saying. I'm just wondering if... Is the most profitable model still to um, get those licenses in emerging states that are going medical of, of all things going that you're doing? You mean that are medical going rec? Or, or going just um, nothing going medical? Yeah. Um, not necessarily the ones going medical. I mean, we had looked... Our approach had been to look at ones that were medical... Uh, that had a, a, a sort of a, a good enough market or a substantial enough market where you could make uh, money under medical and then rec was just going to be, uh, you know, uh, something much, much higher than that. Uh, and it also in the past was a lot about, uh, you know, which coincided with a lot of these states that were going rec. It was it was a lot about, you know, limited license states. Right. Uh, these East Coast states, they weren't giving away you didn't just have to qualify for a license the way you did on the west coast you actually it was competitive you know like say when we applied for our license in jersey they were giving it in what was that 2018 they were giving out six licenses i think there were like 160 applicants and they and they scored the applications um that was i think a strategy for many in the past uh i think now like first of all most of those states are not limited license anymore uh they've been giving out a lot more licenses but now it's more about limited capital. And that applies to practically every state. They're all limited capital states where there's just no money to build out new cultivation facilities uh, uh, and, you know, to a lesser extent to build out new stores. Uh, and, you know, that's, uh, that's good from, a, uh, you know, from the perspective of uh, if, you're, if you're in one of these markets and, uh, and you uh, have built out some, uh, some scale or you're planning on building it, uh, I think now versus a couple of years ago, uh, we don't necessarily have the same assumptions uh, about all of this other money that's going to flood into that market and add capacity. Uh, you know, like a, as an example, New Jersey, sort of the boom times in Jersey, uh, we probably if, if there hadn't been such a major contraction in capital over the last two years, there would definitely be a lot more capacity in Jersey. And even our capacity would have been bigger. I mean, we wanted to get to you know, somewhere close to 100,000 square feet. I mean, right now uh, we're in the uh, in the low 40s uh, just because, you know, nobody has a, a whole lot of money to, to throw around. So, so yeah, I mean, that's it. Uh, in terms of there are these states that are first going medical, but there you're really like uh, you're dealing with, uh, you know, sort of a, a very small market from a, from a revenue perspective, at least in the, in the beginning. And, uh, you know, there's a risk to, there's a risk to, to sort of uh, launching in either newly medical or newly rec markets because you don't like the regulators have been a huge hindrance. I mean, uh, you know, New York, that was going rec, not medical. But uh, I think New York's a good example of, of, you know, if you, if you put a lot of money into New York and we're planning on it being this amazing market, uh, well, I, yeah, I don't think anything should disavow anybody that it's going to be a good market at some point. But they've also learned that the regulators uh, do have the ability to uh, really uh, limit the size of, of any market. That's been helpful. That's, that's helpful, Color. Thanks. Sure. 
Yeah, just to add a bit to what Jason was saying in terms of what the market's valuing, I built something called the Cannabis Cash Flow Portfolio that I track. And what that is, is it's an equally weighted portfolio of the eight companies that generated tax-adjusted operational cash flow last year. And when I say tax-adjusted, that means yeah. adjusting for the fact, did they pay their taxes or not? Because sometimes you see companies bragging about generating right. operational cash flow, then you look at the income tax payable and you're like, huh, yeah. that's not actually what happened. Right. And and for perspective on performance of that, it's, so, it's, so it's eight stocks, it's equally weighted portfolio. I, I added a 75 basis point management fee to make it equal to MSOS. And year-to-date, that portfolio is down 13.7% which is uh, obviously not stellar, but it's better than being down 30% with MSOS. Um, and so I, so I think we're starting to see that investors are valuing the cash flowing assets more. And just to expand on what Jason was talking about with Terrasend, if you look at the numbers and, you, and you, you know, I think in our space, sometimes we're quick to blame politicians. And I think there is plenty of blame to go there. And I'm super frustrated as well. But also we've seen some you know, slowing or eroding of fundamentals in some cases. And I think it's harder to generalize in U.S. cannabis. I think before we could speak of everything being similar, but you're starting to see some companies like Terrasend, um, you know, Verano's been having you know, a lot of progress. GTI has been doing re really well break away. Well, some companies are in flatter periods for their revenues, revenue and EBITDA cycles like TrueLeave. So if we just look at the numbers, we take what I call the tier one-ish MSOs, which are GTI, Verano, TrueLeave, TierLeaf, Cresco, and Terrasend. And you look at their year-over-year -year revenue growth, on average, it's just been 13 basis points. So less than 1% year-over-year revenue growth. And if you look at how that translates into adjusted EBITDA, that's down 5% year-over-year on average for that six-stock basket. If you look through there and you start to look at the operators a little bit more, truly, if year over year is down 10% in revenue and is down 29% in EBITDA. And so, you know, that's a product of the markets that they're in, you know, mainly Florida, a bit of Arizona, two tough markets. Obviously, truly has a monster opportunity, uh, you know, if and when Florida flips wreck, but they're in a little bit of a tougher period. On, on the flip side, you look at Terrasend, their year over year revenue growth is up almost 13% and their EBITDA growth is up 45%. And so there's a lot of dispersion within that basket. And uh, I, I totally agree with Jason. The market is rewarding, A, businesses that have better balance sheets and have the potential now or in the near future to generate cash. But investors also want to see that you're going to be a growing business. You know, cannabis yeah. was, was, the, what, you know, was supposed to be a growth story. You know, we we you know, call it the green rush. And that slowed down. And I think it's gotten to be more market by market. And so, uh, you know, not to uh, suck up to Jason here, but with Terrasend, not only not only are they growing well now, but you tack on people like them that have four stores uh, in Maryland or Kiraleaf, I think has four stores in Maryland. Uh, I think GTI has four stores in Maryland. You know, there's a number of folks that, that do have those four stores. And so I think when we look across U.S. cannabis, we say, yeah, we're super frustrated that we're not getting the political progress. We want the safe, we want the D or rescheduling, but we also want to see people that are showing the ability to generate cash flow and people that are in new markets that are going to drive higher revenues. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Uh, totally. I mean, it's a, we joke, it's like uh, what's the thing about real estate? Every market's local. I mean, that's what's been happening in cannabis as well. I mean, there's a, uh, there's states that are, uh, that are excellent. And then there's states that are, uh, that are very tough and it all, and a lot of it depends on uh, the success over the last say six months or a year depends on 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 where you are and you know but part of your job is identifying you know like that's that's a part of putting putting together assembling your your map of states right um and um you know the other thing is that uh the 
the fact that, like, there is such overall bearishness uh, in this space. Uh, like, when we raised our, I, Jesse, I think maybe we talked to you about it on, uh, I can't remember on the podcast, but it is like, there is so much pessimism now. And just from a, from, you know, from a fund manager perspective, um, I would say that when you see this level of pessimism uh, applied, you know, to practically, uh, you know, to, to practically the, uh, a whole sector, uh, that usually, that's, that's not, uh, you know, that, that, that is often the signs uh, of where you could be at the beginning of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of a bull market or a more rewarding time. I think in this space, you can't look at it, though, as the whole sector. I mean, there's going to be companies that do well and there's going to be and there's other ones that are uh, that are not positioned well or certainly, uh, you know, don't have, uh, you know, the balance sheets to withstand any uh, any uh, more pain. But like, you know, I've said to, you know, to to lots of uh, people I'm close to, it's like, you know, when TerraSense stock was at 16 or 17, you know, none of us had barely a worry in the world and we should have been very worried. Right. Uh, you know, and here where people can't seem to feel like they can take another, you know, uh, you know, 10 cents of loss, uh, you know, where, you know, what's the Warren Buffett saying? You, you know, you should be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Uh, and I would just say put, put an asterisk on, on that, though, and say, but you got to be, you know, you got to be greedy in, in the right names because it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be anything, everything just because of where we are on the, on the, in the balance sheet. You know, yeah, uh, the, the, yeah, fair points. And, uh, you know, the, Jesse's point, uh, it really is, you know, you at bottoms, especially in, in sectors, uh, it really does become a stock picker's market. Right. And I think we're starting yeah, to see that. That's clearly, right. Right. Um, I'll, sw- I'll swing it to James uh, with uh, yep. James. Uh, I, I put in the nest for those uh, who, uh, who aren't as uh, familiar with your story. Uh, this is your, your, your family of next generation drugs. Uh, you have your, your different families. Could you take us through um, the families and obviously the, the large partnerships that you have talk to those Otsuka pharmaceuticals and Cybin and, and just the value of that as well. For sure. So, uh, so I'll start with the, with the partnership because this is totally unique in, in, uh, in, in the public company space um, for psychedelics. Mindset is the only company that has a, uh, a collaboration with Big Pharma. So at the beginning of uh, 2022, we uh, announced this collaboration with the U.S. development arm of uh, Otsuka. Um, Otsuka, that name is not necessarily uh, on the tip of, uh, of everyone's tongue, but um, they are a top 10 psychiatric drug company by revenue. They have uh, a, an enormous drug franchise with uh, an anti-schizophrenia drug called uh, Abilify. That's a, really a market-leading drug. And uh, and this collaboration is is as I said, uh, you know, totally unique and an incredible strategic advantage for uh, mindset for a couple of reasons. One is that um, Otsuka funds uh, for the programs that we collaborate with them on. They fund all the development expenses of those programs, and all that funding is provided on a on a non dilutive basis. So it's you know best possible terms for uh, for uh, us and our shareholders. Um, but really, you know, as, as what's as valuable, um, at least as if really not more valuable than 
um, then the funding is just getting access to their expertise. So, you know, they're running clinical trials all over the world. And it's really meant that Mindset has been able to really, um, you know, stick to what we're really good at, which is early stage drug discovery and, uh, and, and not have to do what, you know, some of our peers in the space have done, which is like have to go out and hire, you know, um, people at all kinds of different levels to try to, you know, recreate, you know, a, a drug company. It's, it's really, really the, the number of companies that, you know, in the history of, of, of drug development have you know, successfully taken a drug all the way from designing the molecule all the way through to the commercialization is like, it's an incredibly small number. So the, the, this funding for Motsuka has also meant that, you know, mindset hasn't had to go back to the capital markets during what's been, you know, a really difficult, um, you know, period for, you know, everybody irrespective of, of how good their business is or, or not. Um, so mindset, you know, we talked publicly about having, um, you know, eight different families, really the, the ones that were focused on two different families with, with Otsuka, the families that we're focused on, we call family two and family four. Family two are um, really, we kind of liken them to sort of third generation uh, psilocybin analogs. Um, you know, they, these are, you know, drugs, at least preclinically that, you know, exhibit a really strong, you know, effect size, but with a significantly shorter duration of action. And, and that shortened duration is, a, is an important feature that, you know, a lot of people in the market, um, a lot of observers have talked about because, Although the data with psilocybin is amazing, um, the the duration of psilocybin is 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 pretty long. The peak experience is only two out about two hours, but the effects linger on for another, you know, six to eight hours, and and that's just an enormous amount of time to have to spend, you know, in clinic, and I'll, you know takes up a lot of therapist resources. So that's you know that that but really shorter duration psychedelic drugs is is. Uh, is something that you know Otsuka was focused on in in selecting you know mindset for this collaboration. Fantastic, and 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 so just on that specifically, uh, James, that two hour. So is it is the, does the real value come you know, when I think about the C, uh, Compass Pathway study? Is is that uh, these are psych uh, these are psychotherapy assisted? Um, it, it does the real value come from the fact that you don't have to keep the patient? Um, in a controlled environment as long like it, like fr from a monetary perspective um, there must be a whole whole host of reasons you don't want that um, th th these effects to linger for six hours right and and that that really does have monetary bottom line effects well well yeah it's it's just a, it's a it's a lot of it's it's essentially your whole day <laughs> and and uh, given that the the model is to have you know two therapists uh, or two observers it's 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 really you know not very efficient um and and will you know require a lot of resources and and we're you know there the data again the the, the data behind like the clinical effect of psilocybin super promising and that's why we're that's why we're here in a lot of respects um and it's going to get it will you know more more likely than not get approved in the next couple of years by the fda so psilocybin is going to be in the market um, but really, uh, you know, the, where we're focused is uh, is the future beyond psilocybin because psilocybin, the challenge that, uh, you know, the companies that are uh, are focused on it are, are gonna, one of the challenges they're going to have is that 
the level of intellectual property rights that you can get around psilocybin are, are really shallow because the psilocybin you know molecules that was described in scientific literature you know many many decades ago at at this point so you you, you can't patent it you can only do what some companies in the space have tried to do, which is to like patent the use of it and and uh, and patent you know formulations of it. But there's really there's going to be there will likely be a lot of generic uh, competition uh, as as soon as psilocybin gets approved by the FDA, they'll have you know generic drug manufacturers likely coming in to to compete against it. So that's really why. You know, our focus was again on on novel drugs, uh, and that was not an area that uh, most groups, you know, were focused on when we got started in, in you know twenty nineteen. So that was you know a huge opening for us. So, so James, if I could ask, uh, with respect to say like in a tie or a compass, like I think when you think about compass, yeah. it's that aspect of you you. You're trying to patent the process, if you will, not the drug particularly, um, and 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 it ties in that same boat as well. And it just that those are some of the challenges. Is just they, they just don't have the IP. Uh, they they just can't. Uh, they don't have the IP protection. Yeah, Compass. I mean, Compass is, has done uh, a, a lot of a lot of work to try to you know build out uh, as much of an IP moat around uh, you know their business as possible. But the the challenge again at the end of the day is that you can't patent the the active pharmaceutical ingredient. So anybody else can go out and, and make their own formulation of psilocybin. If they run it through the regulatory process, you know, they'll be able to to get it to to market. They obviously have a, a head start on a lot of other folks and and you know we have a lot of respect for you know their management team and and you know the work that they've done. So it's it's not a knock on them. It's high, you know, based on my understanding of our portfolio, a lot of it also is is on focused on, you know, formulations or repurposing of, of you know, existing drugs, not as much around, you know, novel, novel molecules. And again, that's been our, our only focus from from day one. And I think that's, you know, a large part of the reason why we were able to, to form this successfully form this, you know, collaboration with Otsuka. Thank you, James. I, I'll, I'll swing it to Scott or Jesse. Uh, final questions uh, for Jason Wow. That's it? We're running out of the time already? Well, we, we're going to take this to four. I just kind of want to make sure we... we, 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 we no, no, but, but I, I've got... I, I, I was going to say the last word. I always got the... No, no. It's, uh, <laughs> but, but maybe, Jason, I'll ask. Um, yeah. When you think about Catalyst going forward, it's... Uh, uh, I think you, you clearly pointed out um, it's it, it, I would say right now the feeling with cannabis is dejection and that's kind of, you, you know, coming back to one of your key points is like when things are warm and fuzzy, that's actually, yeah. you know, that's actually a, you know, that's when, you know, that's when as an investor, you know, right. you should have your back up a bit, right. but here there's no buyers left. No, if everybody's bullish, there's no incremental buyer, right? No, no, exactly. And so, you know, I just so a I'm um, where I get fuzzy is obviously I, I let's just say I'm a, a cannabis for cannabis potential cannabis investors sitting on the sidelines yeah. right now. Um, what can you point to from a concrete perspective that you, where you can say, listen, these are the two three things that you should look for um, that have high probability. That or or you know we know there's the politics side of it, but yeah. you know what can what can we look yeah. for that we going forward a year from now can say yeah. 
Yep, that that was the pivot point here, and right. it, you know, and w- how would you categorize that? Yeah, I think uh, sort of uh, when I break it down to just the sort of the my base views on on the space. You know, the first thing is that this is a massive market. We're not. We don't have to. You know. Uh, sort of uh, speculate on what size we think uh, the cannabis market is. I mean, you know, if we include, you know, the illicit and the, and the legal market, I mean, it's just massive, right? So that is uh, often what, uh, what hurts companies is they, they, you know, they have some new product for some, potentially for some new market and it just doesn't, they're, they're you know, uh, consumers don't, uh, don't buy it uh, to the extent that, uh, that uh, they thought that they were going to. So that we've got. Uh, and and what we've had more recently where in a lot of these states where they've gotten more competitive is not that units have gone down, but price has gone down. Uh, right. So uh, and that, in my view, has been uh, working itself out over the last uh, over the last year and a half or so where there's less capacity uh, in a lot of these states that's online now because, you know, because because not everybody could uh, survive it. So. You know, like we're at the other end of the spectrum from when when I was referring to when, you know, everybody thought everything was awesome uh, at six, you know, when our stock was 16 or 17. And at that point, everybody was taking on or in the process of building out more capacity and spending lots of CapEx dollars and CapEx is down, you know, at least 50 percent, you know, year over year. From, from a year last year, which wasn't so great either. You know, that was, that was down uh, even from the, from the prior year there. So if you, somebody who follows the markets and like watch other cycles, uh, whether it's commodities or even semiconductors, uh, which could be a good example of a cyclical growth sector, uh, where, you know, right now, this is where, you know, in the Peter Lynch books that I used to, you know, read when I was first getting involved in the market, like in these cyclical growth names or, you know, like, you need to, this is where you buy them and they, or certain ones where they seem expensive, uh, but often we're getting around to the pivot uh, maybe of, you know, for the last two years, every stock in the sector, the estimates have gone down practically every quarter after they were, after they reported, the analysts took down their estimates for the, for the out quarters and the out years. Uh, I would say that this is the first quarter I've seen where there are uh, some companies where the estimates are, are going, uh, went up after they reported their quarter. And if that happens sort of with, in conjunction with the amount of bearishness that's out there, uh, that could you know, lead to some explosive uh, movements to the upside. In terms of specific catalysts, I think one of them is just seeing the earnings and seeing uh, which companies are now able to sort of uh, start uh, under-promising and over-delivering again because they've got their, their footing again and they're, they're in a good place uh, fundamentally. Uh, and then, you know, there's uh, the other catalysts are all these additional states that are going to be coming online. Uh, you know, we still have Pennsylvania's got over 13 million people and it's only medical. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, New York, which is sort of, you know, uh, barely, uh, barely uh, wreck and has a, a whole lot of people and lots of other states. So that's not a specific catalyst, like uh, something that's, ha- that's you know a, a specific day, but that should uh, hopefully add a tailwind to uh, a, a lot of companies. And you know, like to me, you know, as a stock picker, the biggest driver of stock returns, uh, as much as I, we all like to talk about other things, the biggest driver is you know the fundamental uh, 
you know, aspects of, you know, their, uh, their cash flow and their, uh, their sales and their sales growth and, and all of that. And as much as all of us uh, point, have pointed to the lack of legislative progress for being the reason that all these companies uh, uh, are down so far off their highs, like the fact is, take a look at what all these companies are going to be making this year compared to what everybody thought they'd be making this year, like two years ago when they were looking into the future. And the numbers are much lower now. So it makes sense that the stocks are, are down. And when you start have companies being able to, uh, uh, you know, continue to beat and raise, I think that, that that's going to be what could flip the, flip the whole thing and, and provide some good performance selectively. Like I said, it's not yeah. going to be everybody. Jason, you make a really good point about, you know, just that aspect of, uh, you know, everyone's investing at the same time and almost needs a, you know, when you're at the bottom here, this is when, uh, you know, you all the, all the CapEx has been washed out. It, you, yeah. you, you really, like, we were talking about this last night about oil and gas, and there's a lot right. of similarities, right? It, it's the same with many cyclical growth yep. sectors, right? Um, Scott, I'll, I'll swing it to you. Yeah, I had one that I forgot to ask you that I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of a silver lining. You know, we know there's mm. price compression going on. But we know the black market is still really big. This is overall yeah. a huge market, but black yeah. market's still big. Have you seen data where prices fall to a certain point in certain states and then you start to see volumes pick up because there might be a black market buyer who now is like, oh, it's cheap enough. I'm going to my dispensary. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I've seen specific data, but we've definitely, you know, the environment's been so tough the last couple of years that, uh, m you know, many, many of the illegal operators have gone out of business as well. So it's like, it's got to be really bad when you don't have to follow all of the rules, which are pretty extensive in cannabis, and you still and you still can't make money. Um, the thing is, we haven't like that. That's the everybody's so beat up. I know, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm, I, I look at uh, the stocks and, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I understand why everybody's beat up. But like the pricing compression that that happened at the end of last year, even in the most intense uh, you know, uh, competitive markets, say, say like Michigan, like prices are not down from December 31st in Michigan. You know, they're uh, on average, they're, they're up. But, but everybody, but like, you know, maybe partly because the stocks, you know, look like they continue to go down every single day. I, I feel like everybody thinks that the, that the uh, environment uh, is still, uh, you know, continuing to compress. Uh, like I said before, I think it's more about, say like in Michigan, it's more because uh, so many of these companies have bad balance sheets. And I was shocked when I saw these private companies that were like, you know, levered much, much more than even a lot of the public companies. So they just can't, even though the compression has stopped, they can't, uh, they, they can't uh, get out of, you know, sort of the rut that they're in because they're paying all their money in, uh, you know, in interest and they're not making enough money. Did that answer your question? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And Jason, you make you make a great point there on uh, on uh, when, when the black market is going out of business. That oh tells my god! You right, that, that, that's that's a heck of an indicator right there. You, you know, you know, it's bad, and you know something <laughs> we've been saying, something we've been saying here for months is like the environment. It's it's so bad that it's good. Yeah, right. <laughs> because, because these this is where the opportunities happen. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have been able to buy stuff in Maryland for like you know whatever it is less than th you know three times uh, pro forma. Uh, uh, EBITDA on these dispensaries, we never would have been able to buy them if there was, you know, more competitive tension, uh, you know, uh, from from other bidders. Yeah, yeah, abs abs absolutely. And, and, you know, 
and if uh, capital was easily accessible, yeah. right? Yeah, right. it's uh, 100%. Uh, so swinging to James, uh, with respect to catalysts uh, for mindset, uh, you know, looking forward, and, um, and also the overall industry, would love to get your, uh, your, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, our, our, our disclosure cadence is, looks a little more like a traditional biotech company now that we're, uh, you know, partnered with a, with a big pharma. But yeah, we have a, you know, really major, you know, 12 months coming up. We got approval on uh, a clinical trial for MSP 1014, which is uh, one of our drugs that sits outside of the outs of the partnership um and uh you know i think next year we'll have some you know some major developments with uh you know moving hopefully moving um you know msp 2020 into into clinical trials so lots more you know big catalysts for us uh you know on the horizon and i mean like what what catalyst doesn't this space have at the moment you know like the the you're gonna have you know the readout from the maps uh mdma uh you know phase three trial soon you're gonna get mdma you know approved by the fda you're gonna get you know more data from the compass trials like the hits just keep coming and uh and it's nice because now it seems like investors are starting to you know pay attention to the to the space again it's wonderful. James, uh, thank you for the great insights. Uh, and uh, guys, you, you know what? We've got uh, two big winners here uh, for t- 2023 here, Tara Send, uh Mindset Pharma. If you guys don't follow Jason or James, please do give him a follow.